Today's reading is Exodus 3, verses 16 to 414. Um, in the Pew Bibles, you can find out on page 42. Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of, Israel, of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed toward this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask a neighbor and any woman living in the house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous, like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second, but if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. But Moses said, O Lord, please send someone else to do it. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and his heart will be glad when he sees you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So if you've been, if you were with us last week, you'll know we're beginning a new series. We're looking at the prayer life of Moses, how Moses processes his response to his calling as he walks through his life in prayer with God. And I hope you heard the way I worded that, how he responds to his calling. We see today that Moses actually has a number of excuses to make and God has a number of responses. I'm wondering what the best excuses you have heard as a way of shirking responsibilities. I looked this up online to see what true but somewhat odd excuses people come up with and here are a few. I broke my arm 
trying to catch a falling sandwich.、Uh, my llama won't stop throwing up. A good reason to buy a llama.、Uh, my wife found out that I was cheating, and I had to spend the day retrieving my belongings from the dumpster.、Uh, and my favourite one: I accidentally got on a plane, and I don't know where I am. Now these people, believe it or not, are in good company. The Bible is full of people with creative excuses. If you remember Gideon in Judges chapter six,、uh, God comes to him and says, addresses him as mighty warrior, because the Midianites are the Midianites are oppressing God's people, and God is coming and and says. To Gideon, you are going to be a mighty warrior. You're going to deliver. I'm going to use you to deliver God's people. And this is what Gideon says: "Pardon me, my lord, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the weakest in my family." We go to Jeremiah, the prophet. God comes to him and says, "I'm going to anoint you as a prophet over all the nations." Not just the Israelites and those from Judah, but all the nations. And Jeremiah says, "Alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am too young." Then, of course, we've got Peter in the New Testament. When he's out fishing, he doesn't catch anything. Jesus is looking for new disciples, and he tells Peter to throw the net over the other side of the boat. Peter hauls it all, hauls it all in. And you would think his response would be, "I'm in," but his response to Jesus is, "Go away from me, Lord! I am a sinful man. I am the weakest in Manasseh and the least, or the weakest in my family. I do not know how to speak. I am too young. Go away from me! I am too sinful. All excuses that men of the Bible have used." To avoid, or to try to avoid, responding, responding again. I'm using that word carefully to their calling. Today we're going to look at Moses and his calling and his excuses. We're going to look at those two pieces. We're going to look at this firstly in chapter three, verses sixteen and thirty-two, and we're going to look at how do you respond to a call? How do you respond to a call in chapter three? Verses sixteen to thirty-two. Then we're going to look at how to make God angry. I guess you've always wanted to know that. How do we make God angry? In verses four, one to fourteen. So let's jump in. How do we respond to a call? Now, if you look at verses sixteen to thirty-two in chapter three, you'll notice a few things. Firstly, that. There's no dialogue here coming back from Moses. These are the words of God and only God. So where's the response to call here? Well, you see, the call's already happened. Kyle preached about that last week. There's a bit of a confusion in Christian thinking that call is something we discern. Oh, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do that. Tell me what I'm supposed to do, God. Let me divine that, please. The truth is. The word "calling" in Scripture is primarily used about being called to God. God called to Moses. God calls to us. Responding to the call then is not an act of divination. It's an act of obedience and an act of response. And if you look here, 
In this passage, we see the words of God to Moses, and it's full of imperatives. And actually, it's not full of imperatives. There are two imperatives repeated twice. In verse 16, Go, assemble the elders of Israel, and say to them, The Lord your God, the Lord the God of your fathers. Then a little bit later in verse 18, Go to the king of Israel and say, The Lord the God of the Hebrews. So the calling has already happened, right? We're looking here at a response of obedience. Now, this, we are not called to divine micro and macro decisions, right? We respond in obedience. And let me just make that clear. A lot of people say and have come to me as a pastor, ask me questions, help me make this decision. And I want to try to make this point primarily with what I'm going to call the hierarchy of the absurd. Like the big decisions, right? Maybe they're the ones that we need to ask God to give us a special sign about. Like, who should I marry? Or what job should I take? Okay, so let's go down the hierarchy a little bit. What about what clothes should I wear? Should I wear this pair of shorts, God? Or should I wear that pair of shorts, God? Let's go down a little bit further. God, what should I have for dessert? Should I have the strawberry ice cream? of the chocolate ice cream. And you think, that's a little bit silly. Well, when does it become silly? When do we start making or looking for divine inspiration, being able to divine through some sort of sign what God wants us to do? Now, what I'm going to say is the, the way we learn his ways is not through these little divinic experiences of, oh, should I do this or should I do that? Give me a sign, God. The way we do it is through encounters with God through word and spirit. The encounter with God through word and spirit renews the mind. I can give you an example of that for me. Reading through the scripture, sitting in prayer with God. I kept on coming across this passage in Samuel where David basically, catastrophe happens to David and the people of um, Israel because he counts the fighting men. And I can't tell you how many times I read that and said, what on earth is going on here? Why is this so bad? You've done all these things, and this is the thing that bothers you, God? And then I realized it was his lack of dependence on God. That's the tragedy here, right? The fact that a king would want to know how many fighting men he had rather than resting and trusting in God. That was the fatal flaw in David's kingship. So there's a little word to me. Where's the dependency? Where's the dependency? And working through that is how you start to develop a sense for the mind and the heart of God. Or he softens the heart, right? What happens when you spend time in prayer praying for your neighbours? You start to care about them. You want to know what's going on with them. You're naturally curious. Prayer ignites in you the same heart for the lost as God has for the lost. Prayer in word and spirit shapes us as we sit before God. But doesn't God speak to us sometimes directly? There are certainly examples from Scripture, perhaps the main one being where Paul is trying to decide, do we go into Asia Minor? Do we go north? Where do we go? And the truth is, of course, there are times when God does speak directly, when we need it, if we need it. But it's not because of our deep spirituality. 
We don't measure our spirituality and our, our ability to divine what God is trying to tell us. Now, I hear what you're saying, but if you were, if those of you who got that email I sent out a couple of weeks ago, the pastoral musings, if you didn't, please get on the email list. It's one of the ways we communicate what's going on in the church. But you'll notice that I talked there about how God actually opens or, or causes us to be obedient by making things happen. And the sacking of Jerusalem is what pushed the Jews out into the surrounding world to spread the message, the, the, the early Christians into the world to spread the message, right? So God definitely uses and shapes and controls and guides primarily through opening and closing doors in terms of if he needs to set direction, sometimes with an audible voice, if that's what he needs to direct you. But the primary way we discern what God wants us to do is by knowing his heart and his mind because we've sat in prayer in spirit and word before him. Now, I hear what you're also saying. Wouldn't divination be easier? Yes, it would. But <laughs> it'd be nice if God just said, do that, do that. But what's wrong with that? Can you imagine? Can you imagine being married to someone? Now, they just spent their time in the bedroom watching the TV or doing whatever they wanted to do. And if they wanted a meal, they sent you a fax and said, I'm feeling like Chinese. Or if they wanted the dishes done, they sent you a fax and said, can you do the dishes? Or if they wanted some flowers, they said, I'd like this particular flower, could, could you please go and get me those flowers? Or if they said, you know what, I'd like to listen to some jazz. Can you put on a little bit of jazz music for me? Now, there was no intimacy there. There was no deep sense of who that person is. All you were doing was responding to the fax messages, right? What we see then is that that divinic, the divining approach to discerning God's will and the deep prayerful word and spirit getting the mind and the heart of God and then making the decisions that make sense in the light of that is really the difference between a bride, the bride of Christ, or some servant uh, without any sort of deep and intimate relationship. It's sterile. This morning, I was reading through my sermon notes. Patty got up. Uh, I didn't know what she was doing. She was doing something downstairs. All of a sudden, she comes up with this nice cup of espresso coffee. Black, no sugar, no milk. How did she know that I liked that? You know, I didn't send her a fax, right? Somehow, in the intimacy of life together, she's got to know what my heart, where my heart is, where my mind is. And that's how we respond to the call of God, in obedience with renewed minds and softened hearts. Now, let me put it to you another way. God is looking for a lover and not a slave. Sound a little risky, risque, maybe. But let me ask you this, are we ticking boxes with God or are we developing intimacy with God? I'm going to use language going forward in the sermon, and I'm using it meaningfully and intentionally, even if it sounds a little flippant. The way we get to know the heart and the mind of God are with God cuddles and plastic lawnmowers. Now, what am I talking about here? I'm talking about that intimacy with God in prayer and spirit, where we're vulnerable and open, where we're sitting with him, we're letting his word and spirit speak to us, Plastic lawnmowers, 
In those encounters, we hear, we hear, we hear, we sense, we know his mind and his heart, and we get the sense, oh, you know what, he probably wants me to mow the lawn. Now, really, the things that God asks us to do, as we're going to see, are probably way beyond our capability in terms of producing the coming of the kingdom of God. That's his work. It's like the child who goes out behind the father because he loves the father as the father's mowing the lawn because he wants to be like the father with the plastic lawnmower to be with the father while he's doing the work. It's obviously more complicated than that, and that sounds childlike, but it's important. And I'm not being flippant when I say plastic lawnmowers, and I'm not being flippant when I'm using the term God cuddles. Obviously, these cuddles can be hard and complicated because we can be talking about painful things and difficult things. And these lawnmowers, if you're an, if you're, these plastic lawnmowers are obviously very hard and complicated things if you're a missionary of Afghanistan or if you're truly fulfilling, fulfilling responding to your call in places and situations which are difficult and hard. But I can tell you, the people who know that their lawnmower is plastic more than anyone else are those who serve in the hardest places and they realize that their dependency is completely and absolutely on the work of the Lord through them, that they don't have it in themselves. It is not offensive, it's actually encouraging to hear that our lawnmower is just a plastic lawnmower and we're following the Lord where he's going. And in, on his knee, in our cuddles with him in word and spirit, it's safe, and we can share whatever we want to share with him. And I do, I want to ask you the question. I want to challenge you with the idea. Why do we hear people stand up so often and say, I heard an audible voice and the Lord spoke to me? What I would love to hear from the churches, from the pews, from the people giving testimonies is their stories about God's cuddles and their experiences with plastic lawnmowers. That's where the intimacy is. Great, you got a fax from God. Clearly he needed to communicate something. What I really want to know is, are you cuddling with him? Have you got your plastic lawnmower out and are you following him into a life of service? So we look here at the response again. We pointed out the two words, the two, the two uh, imperatives, go and say. Right, go in submission and independent. Say, proclaim. How can I proclaim with my life is what we should be asking. And we notice that this go and proclaim, go and say, is sort of sandwiched, not really sandwiched, but it's sort of picking up on two themes, right? The message in Genesis, the cultural mandate, go, subdue the earth. And the message at the end of Matthew, go, make disciples. There's a sense here in which we are being invited to participate in the movement of God through redemptive history in the ways which are meaningful and significant. A plastic lawnmower somehow matters, and that's where God is calling us to be. So purpose of prayer, by the way, we've made it clear already that it is to soften our hearts and it is to renew our minds, but those cuddle prayers have another function. They're the place where God reveals the difference between our idolatrous and our holy affections. It's where when we submit to him, he says, why are you really doing this? Is this because you love me and you see this as a way of expressing 
your obedience to me? Or are you building your own kingdom? And of course, to the outside, those things can look the same, but it's in those cuddle moments that we really, under word and spirit, that God starts to speak to our hearts and reveals to us what's going on in them. Now, prayer is also the place where God tames the will. Where he reveals to us, is it our ego that's driving this decision-making? What's going on? Where is that stubbornness coming from? In a sense, I'm going to give you an example, right? In my heart, I have this, and I was, I have this, I have this affection, this desire to teach at a college. I really do. I really enjoy it and I really love it. And I've tried this once before. I tried it once before when I said, you know what, God, I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to do it even though I've got all this other stuff going on. And the wisdom of the people around me spoke into it. They're like, do you really have time to do this? This sounds like a crazy idea. <laughs> my wife said that to me. My small group said that to me. Even the college said that to me. Are you sure you can do this? And guess what? Who was right? I can tell you, I was not sitting in a very cuddly relationship with God. I was like, God, I've got this. God's like, actually, I don't think you have got this. And by the end of that semester, I was a wreck, a mess. We went back to cuddles, and we stopped teaching at Gordon College for a while. Now, I'm trying to approach that differently this time, trying to be a little bit more obedient, a little bit less deep independent in my approach to that. My heart is still there. I still need to spend place in cuddle moments asking, God, is this going to open up? What does it look like to do that obediently? Do I have to let this go? Cuddle moments with God. Cuddle moments with God. Asking him, is this where you want me to take my plastic lawnmower? Or do you want me to take it somewhere else? It's not about calling. Okay, it's about responding to calling in obedience. And I'm going to just give you these words to take away. It's all about cuddles and plastic lawnmowers. All right? Now, create that picture because we're going to need to understand that as we move on to the second part, chapter 4, where we look at how to make God angry. Or perhaps we can say how not to respond to a call. And the first thing I'm going to say is that title is a little bit deceptive because God doesn't get angry and it's not like it builds up. I'm going to try to convince you that he's not angry for the first two times. He's only angry, angry the third time with the third excuse that Moses comes up with. The first two times are very different. If we look at verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, verse 1. The excuse that Moses uses after he's been told, go and tell the Hebrews, to follow you because you're going to lead them to the, to the mountain to worship and into the promised land, right? Go and tell Pharaoh to let you go because I am, I am your God. And Moses, first of all, says, you know what? I don't think the Hebrews are going to believe me. Now, ironically, he's probably, I mean, that's a reasonable thing to say, except that in the previous chapter, in verse 13, as was read earlier by Alex, we actually hear uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, we hear God say to Moses in verse 18, they will believe you. So what Moses is saying here directly contradicts God. He's completely doubting the word of God. In a sense, he's saying, I don't believe you, God. 
It's a lack of belief. But notice, God is not angry. We see no anger from God at this point. Now, I don't know if this is familiar to you or not, but this lack of belief, this doubt is familiar to me. Right? If I take a Sabbath, now perhaps I won't earn as much money or I'm going to get behind in my work or you know, something could go wrong or if I tithe, my lifestyle might suffer. Unbelief, unbelief. If I tell the truth, there may be negative consequences. Unbelief. If I boldly share the gospel, people might mock me. Unbelief. Now, we better define that unbelief because it is quite possible that if I take a Sabbath, my school grades or my work could suffer. Or that if I tithe, my lifestyle, my lifestyle may diminish some. Or that if I tell the truth, there may be negative consequences. Or if I boldly share the gospel, I might be mocked. But the unbelief is that God will not work out these things to, and I'm going to say, first of all, my good through my obedience, because my good is intrinsically linked to his good and the coming of the kingdom. And that requires belief. That requires me to be able to see that connection. I need to be able to trust in this God. God, I don't know if I believe you. Sure, I believe you exist. Sure, I believe I... But I don't know if I believe you with all this stuff about Sabbath and tithing and telling the truth and boldly sharing the gospel. That's a little scary, God. Not sure if I believe you in that. Again, God is not angry. Notice that God is not angry. In fact, he has a solution here for Moses. Now, he says to Moses, start with small steps. And I, I do want to, I know that when you read the commentaries, they all do a lot of work unpacking what's the significance of the snake, what's the significance of the leprosy, what's the significance of the blood. Uh, we have to cover it, so I'm going to do it in about 30 seconds and I'm going to go on to what's really important, right? Snake, evil, staff, power. If I, can, if I can throw a staff on the ground and pick up a snake, I have authority over evil. Leprosy, sign of death, into the, oh, sign of death, oh, I have power over death. Blood, God of the Nile, the God of the Nile is the God of the Egyptians, pouring out the Nile and turning it into blood. The God of the Hebrews has power over the God of the Egyptians. Okay, we've done that little piece. You can file that away in the interesting facts about the Old Testament. Let's move on to God's training program for Moses. You see, God is saying, look, you have problems doubting me. Okay, you doubt me. You have problems with belief. It's hard to trust me. Let's start with something really small. Take that stuff and throw it on the ground. Moses is like, you know what? Going to Egypt that's, and talking to Pharaoh and convincing the Hebrews that you told me to take him to the promised land, that's a little tricky. I think I can throw my staff on the ground. I'll give that a try. So he throws his staff on the ground. So I'm sure he was shocked. It turned into a snake. Then God says, pick it up. And at this point, his faith is being tested. I don't know. I'm not. So you notice he says he picked it up by the tail. Right? So he picks it up by the tail and it turns back to the staff. Moses is being taken through small and tiny steps of obedience to see that he can trust God. Same with the hand in the leprosy. He puts his hand into the coat. Easy, right? Put your hand in your coat. I can do that, God. Small step, I can do that. 
Take it out. Oh my gosh, it's got leprosy. Put it back in. You know what? At this point, I'm so willing to put it back in there, right? Don't want to get stuck with the leprosy. Takes it out. He doesn't even need to try the one with the Nile because God has put him through this training program. God's not angry because he doesn't believe. He takes him on small steps to experience what belief and a response to a calling is in terms of obedience. Unbelief, it's no problem for God. He's not angry. He meets them where they're at. He meets Moses where he's at. He meets us where we're at. Now, many of us certainly can say, I want my whole life to be dedicated completely and utterly to the service of the Lord. Everything I do. And I have this big picture of what that should look like. But I'm so far from that and I'm overwhelmed by how far I am from that. What I'm going to suggest to you is that you start small with, with, with small cuddles and small plastic lawnmowers. Don't try to turn the Titanic in a U-turn in an inch. It takes a while to reorient your life to God. And I hear what you're saying, right? I'm hearing what you're saying, but surely this big picture of what I should be is what I should be, every, I should be getting all of that right, not this tiny little turn, not this tiny little adjustment. Well, let me tell you this, that big picture that you have of what you should be, that is minusculely small to what you really should be. So you might as well start here anyway. Something that you can actually do, right? So start small with a small cuddle and a small plastic lawnmower. And I can give you some suggestions, little ones. These may not be for you. Pray them through. Have a little cuddle and see what you think. Join a fellowship group. Come down to a fellowship and fellowship with us after church if you aren't doing that already. Arrive on time to church. We're just starting with little small things, right? Uh, volunteer. Big need right now is in hospitality. If you'd love to volunteer for hospitality, small step. Maybe God in his cuddle says, you know what? That's the plastic lawnmower I'd like you to use right now. Greeting. Sound. There are areas. Now, these are all small and they're inside the church. And it's not that you shouldn't be doing those things outside as well. Small little steps. Which neighbor should you be praying for? Right? Which friend should you be caring about? What small change should you be making in your behavior in the workplace? What are the tiny little steps that in your cuddles God is telling you to get out your plastic lawnmower and participate in? All right, so that is the biggest and most significant excuse that Moses uses. They'll never believe me. Okay, God says, that's all right, start small. We get on to his second excuse. We read in verse 410, his, his excuse is, Look, I'm inadequate. I'm not a good speaker. In fact, in the Hebrew, Jill Benson used to be here and she used to read the Hebrew text. I can be honest with you, according to the commentators, this word here apparently means stutter, right? So he's saying, I'm a stutterer. I'm not a good public speaker. It's a common fear, public speaking. In the class I'm teaching now at Gordon, I'm always amazed how many people are sick on the day it's time to do a presentation in class. Seems like some amazing correlation between class presentation and Gordon flu, right? So it's not an uncommon fear. I don't have what it takes. My plastic lawnmower isn't going to cut it. And you know what? 
Moses is halfway there. He's right. He hasn't got what it takes, right? I don't have what it takes. It was a totally reasonable thing to say. What he should have gone on and said is, so I am completely and utterly dependent on you. Friday I went for a walk with someone in the congregation. We were talking about becoming an elder. And they said, I don't have what it takes. And I said, that's it, first qualification. You realize you don't have what it takes. You realize your dependence. Okay? God's response in 4.11. I love his response. I gave you that stutter. I gave you that weakness. I gave you that plastic lawnmower. It's good enough. It'll work. There's a reframe here. God is saying, and I love this because last week, Kyle made this point, and it was a really good point. When Moses is called to God at the burning bush, Moses has two questions to God. Who are you, and who do you think I am? And God's response is, I know who I am, and honestly, it really doesn't matter who you are, because I've got that covered. And here we see a very similar response from God. Okay, yeah, you, you stutter, you can't speak very well, but this is not an unbelief in you problem. This is an unbelief in me problem. He needs to realize that despite his weakness, maybe even because of his weakness, God is going to use him to fulfill the peace that God has in mind for him in terms of participating in the bringing about of the coming of the kingdom. So there's cuddle prayer here, cuddle dialogue here, which goes, of course, I am dependent. Now, where do they put that plastic lawnmower again? Let me get out there and start mowing the lawn anyway. And notice again, God is still not angry. In fact, the takeaway here should be, thank you, God, for my weakness. Thank you, God, for my weakness, because it makes me realize my dependence. It means that what I do glorifies you and not me. This is beautiful. Thank you, God, for my weakness. So then we get to the third and the final excuse that Moses uses in verse 13. Please send somebody else. And this makes God angry. This is what makes God angry. Not the fact that he doesn't believe God is powerful enough. Not the fact that he doesn't believe God can use him through his weaknesses. But the fact that he says, please send someone else. And really what Moses is saying here is, you know what, this idea of cuddling you and getting out my lawnmower, my plastic lawnmower, I've got other things to do. It's not a belief problem, it's a rejection problem. And God's initial response here is burning anger. And then, fine, I'll use Aaron. Rejection, burning anger, fine, I'll use Aaron. Now, he's not angry because of the unbelief or a sense of inadequacy but the choice not to be available, the rebellion, the rejection of God. I'm not interested in your plan, God. Okay, so that's the end of our text. Where do we go with that? So what happened to all of our excuse makers? All right, well, Gideon, the man from the weakest clan, the weakest man from the weakest clan, he defeated the Midianites. Jeremiah, poor of speech and too young. He is one of the greatest prophets that spoke to the Israelites, the Judeans, and to all the nations around. Peter, 
too great a sinner to follow Jesus, the rock on which the church was built. And what of Moses? Struggles to believe God is big enough to write him into history. Struggles to believe God was big enough to overcome his inadequacies. The one who put himself under the wrath of God by rejecting God. What happened to Moses? By chapter 13, Moses is speaking to the people without Aaron. In Acts 7.22, Stephen describes Moses as a great speaker. In Exodus 33, we see that the Lord is speaking to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. In his death, and I didn't write down the reference here, I think it's in Deuteronomy around chapter 34 or so, God takes him up to a mountaintop and he shows him and they look over the promised land. And God is really saying to him, you know that little plastic lawnmower that you've been following me around with? Look where we got with that. And God has a private burial ceremony with Moses. And in incredible intimacy, he buries Moses. We don't know where it is, right? But God does and Moses does. And together they spend those last, last moments together looking, at, looking back in a sense and saying, it was good. It was very good. Now, how is this possible? How is this possible that Moses could go from, I'd rather be anywhere else than there's nowhere else I'd rather be? God brought him along. God brought him along through cuddles and plastic lawnmowers, right? Through scripture and word in prayer and trying to apply that in service in whatever small ways they could. And how is it possible? And that's not the amazing thing. That's the small question. The big question is, how is it possible that God went from wrath to friendship to devotion? God is not a tame God. Where did the wrath of God go towards Moses? Now, it was born by the prophet, not who came down from Mount Sinai, but the prophet who wrote the new covenant. Jesus in the garden had every right to say no. The one person who didn't need an excuse to be excused. And Jesus said, yes, not my will, but your will be done. Obedience unto death, victory and resurrection. And this prophet doesn't just step, stand on the mountaintop and look into the coming kingdom. This, this prophet leads the way into the new kingdom. Snuggle, snuggle, get out your plastic lawn mowers. God is your friend. God is devoted to you. Don't let your unbelief, your self-doubt, or your rebellion stop you. God has made a way. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, in all humility we are so aware that we are riddled with you doubt and us doubt and rebellion. And it's so easy for us to get caught up with all sorts of reasons because of this where we shouldn't snuggle with you, 
in prayer and word and spirit and, and why we shouldn't continually try to find ways of serving you independence father help us to let that go help us to realize you have made a way always look to the cross and the resurrection the sign that says i have done it it is finished help us not to be slaves to our doubt in ourselves or in you or even our own rebellion help us to find freedom in the work that you have done and that you have been victorious on our behalf for we ask these things in jesus name amen